cryptocurrency heists, forbidden crypto conferences, and another Chrome Zero Day. All that and more on the Naked Security Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. I am Doug Ameth. With me, as always, is Paul Ducklin. Hello, folks. Paul, we like to start the show with a fun fact, and I have a fun fact for you today. If you're in sales, you might know this phenomenon all too well. Pre-announcing new products before they're ready can cause prospective buyers to stop buying the current products while they wait for the new ones. This is known as the Osborne Effect, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in our This Week in Tech History segment later in the show. But as we like to say here, sell what's on the truck. Yes. And for those of you wondering, we're not going to say in advance whether this Osborne effect is the Adam Osborne effect or the John Osborne effect. You have to work it out in the interim period for yourself. Great. And speaking of working things out, let us start the show. We have another Chrome Zero Day. It's an emergency. You should patch now. And uh, is this worrying? This is... uh... This is three already this year. I don't know whether it's something that you should worry about. My mother used to have a tea set that she inherited from her mum, which had a sugar bowl that said on it, nothing good is got by worry, (laughs) (laughs) which we never used it because it was very, very old fashioned, Uh uh, even at the time. But I always used to get shown that when I would fret about things that I could do little about or where there was an obvious thing I could do but hadn't done it yet. And in the case of Chrome O-Days, would you rather know that they're there and that they are O-Days and there's a fix or would it be better if we didn't hear about them at all? Option one. Yes, it looked like option one. (laughs) You're right. It's the third time this year that Google has put out an update where there's. it's obviously not routine because... There aren't just the usual list of suspects fixed. It's, hey, there's a bug, and we know that it's been exploited in the wild. This one is CVE-2022-1364. And the type of bug, it's a type confusion in V8. And V8, meant to be a super powerful engine, of course, that's the JavaScript engine that's used in Chromium, Chrome, Edge and other Chromium-based browsers. And type confusion basically means that you can trick the JavaScript engine into using memory that was allocated for one purpose as if it had been allocated for another, which means that you may be able to trick something that expects to see an X and a Y coordinate. Suddenly, it's treating those X and Y coordinates as if they were memory pointers or code to execute or something like that. So it's a sort of bait and switch that you do with data that the system decides to trust because it thinks, well, those would be weird numbers if they related to the flow of control in the program. But if they relate to an icon width and height, they'd be absolutely fine. So you submit them under one pretense and then get them used under another. And this as you can imagine, can give you all sorts of superpowers that you're not supposed to have. So clearly, it is a patch-early-patch-often case, Douglas, as always. Okay, and um, this isn't just Google Chrome. This is anything based on the Chromium engine, right? Edge 
put out an update basically the day after the Chromium 1 came out. Didn't say, but I'm assuming that the Edge version included this particular fix. And I guess the reason why it's worth doing something about this, as you said earlier, Doug, this is the third time this year. In only one of those cases so far has Google actually managed to go back in time and work out what really happened. And it turned out that the first of the three O-Days this year was actually exploited by two different North Korean cybercrime groups, apparently. So although you probably weren't affected, if you were, you can imagine it was someone who definitely had your worst interests at heart. So what you need to do is check what Chrome or Edge, for that matter, version you have, because if you are already up to date, it will tell you no need to do anything. If you aren't, it will give you a chance to go and fix. All right. That is yet another Chrome Zero Day Emergency Update patch now on NakedSecurity.Sophos.com. Our next story, we have a double no-no, a no-no-no-no, if you're an American. So it is a no-no, unless under special circumstances, to visit North Korea. And it is a no-no to try to conduct business there. So we have an American who went to North Korea to uh, try to drum up some cryptocurrency business, a double no-no. Yeah, you could even call this a no, 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 Doug, sort of no to the power wow. six. Because um, not only are you not supposed to do business with North Korea for reasons of sanctions, or if you have a US passport to visit, even on a controlled holiday, as far as I know, what you're certainly not supposed to do is to apply for permission saying, look, I'm looking, I am asking for special dispensation to go for, because there are some reasons under which you can. Then be told, sorry, no, you can't do that, and then go anyway. <laughs> Even though you imagine what you would talk about at a general high-level cryptocurrency conference would probably be stuff that was pretty much in the public domain anyway. Understandably, he was asked some rather difficult questions on his return. <laughs> on account of the no, 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 no. Yeah, the triple my understanding, no, no. Yeah, my understanding is that even his sort of chums in the cryptocurrency community who might argue, you might say from a libertarian standpoint, or the fact that like you go to a cryptocurrency conference and you just present stuff that's kind of already known, probably not a big deal. But it seems that even those people who might disapprove of what happened to him in the end, feeling that prosecuting may have been a step too far, it seems that they all said, well, we did tell him, don't go. Why go when you know you're not supposed to? And unfortunately for Mr. Virgil Griffith, he, he decided to try and hold out for not guilty, um, but eventually did a plea deal and he received a 63-month prison sentence less 10 months that I believe he has already been on remand. Yeah, this is a, uh, <laughs> a bizarre story with a, a long prison sentence. And uh, you can read all about it on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. It's called U.S. Cryptocurrency Coder Gets Five Years for North Korea Sanctions Busting. Very interesting. And speaking of interesting, it's time for This Week in Tech History. Well, we talked a bit about the Osborne effect earlier in the show. And this week in 1982, the Osborne Executive Portable Computer was released. Now, this was the successor to the mega-popular Osborne One, which was the first mass-produced portable computer. 
Oh, how I wanted one of those, Doug. Who didn't? They had the world's tiniest screen nestled between two five and a quarter inch floppy disks. But what a thing. Like it was what a 12 kilogram computer that you could carry and you just needed one <laughs> wall plug to plug it in. Like uh-huh. that was practically a laptop, Doug. Yeah. The executive was initially pre-announced but then delayed. And in the interim, computer dealers stopped ordering the Osborne 1 while they waited for the delayed Osborne executive. And this effectively drained Osborne's cash reserves. And the company eventually collapsed. And the Osborne effect was born. Ha ha. Was that a pun, Doug? Nicely done. Yes. And to be clear, this was Adam Osborne, who graduated from the University of Birmingham. Not John Osborne, the now-retired pop singer, who's also from Birmingham. <laughs> pop um, singer. Many people probably... Well, I don't know what you call him. I mean, he's done a few songs that some people will know. Sure. Songs like National Acrobat, Fairies Wear Boots, War Pigs, Paranoid, that kind of stuff. Yeah, we are talking about Aussie. This mm. wasn't the Aussie Osborne effect. That's, that's a very different thing indeed. <laughs> yes, yeah, yes, indeed. Um, this is, yeah... Don't sell your chickens before they've hatched. Yeah, so if you're in sales and your marketing team wants to pre-announce a product, you can just say, don't Osborne me, you guys. It's not fair. Speaking of something that's probably not fair, we have a very kind of gray area for a cryptocurrency heist of dubious legality, but that on the face of it seems really illegal. This is a fascinating story. Yes, it's another one of those rather sad tales that we've had to tell several of on the Naked Security podcast in recent months relating to what's called DeFi, or decentralized finance. Now, anyone who's studied the history of Bitcoin, for example, will know that when it started, it was really, you might say, a libertarian ideal for having some kind of online digital currency to trade with. And as most of our readers will know, what's happened due to volatility in the value of Bitcoin and the fact that transactions are comparatively slow, so you can't handle millions of transactions a day like Visa and MasterCard, it's almost as though Bitcoin has become, you might say, an investment vehicle. So people trade in Bitcoin, not with Bitcoin. Whereas the whole idea was it was meant to be a cryptocurrency, not a sort of alternative stock market. Exactly. So DeFi is an attempt to put the currency back in cryptocurrency. Yes, with the decentralized aspect. So the idea is you give the DeFi service, who might yet have some kind of centralized control that Bitcoin was supposed to avoid, But once you've got your investment in there, the idea is that so-called stablecoin-based DeFi companies or services will will have some kind of algorithmic way of trying to keep the value of their cryptocurrency constant. So, for example, with the, the Beanstalk, the Bean currency, the idea was that by changing the sort of buying and selling rules, depending on whether the price was going up or down. They did artificially control the value quite well, as far as I can see, so that it was pretty much one bean equals one US dollar. The idea is, therefore, you're going to use this to trade with, 
not to trade in. You're not expecting the value to go up. You're expecting it to be useful as a way of trading, but without having to go through your regular bank or your regular contract system or, you know, all the old style, complicated, time consuming, expensive stuff that for all that it might be expensive has hundreds of years of legal checks and balances built in. So this company, this Beanstalk crowd, well, they fell foul of essentially a, a, a flaw. Is it a vulnerability? Is it a bug? Or is it just lack of forward thinking in what you might call their cryptocurrency governance system? So it wasn't that someone hacked away to create a a forged digital signature or a contract that paid out twice by mistake. The story is kind of sad, is that they they wanted to be able to be responsive. So they wanted a way of having emergency provisions that the community would vote on, but would vote fast. So that what they did is they say, well, for some things, you can put up a proposal for emergency voting. And it's not just enough that 51% of the people think it's a good idea. You have to get a supermajority, two thirds. So it's supremely unlikely that any one person would ever be able to, or even a whole bunch of people would be able to collude to approve things that were absolutely out of the ordinary. But that is exactly what happened in this case. And it seems as though the way this worked is that personal persons unknown proposed an emergency transaction that my understanding is that at, at the heart of this was this idea, hey, the community should uh, donate $250,000 worth of bean tokens to a relief appeal for Ukraine. Fair enough. But the, the smart contract would also pay the person starting the transaction a load of money as well. So clearly no one's going to vote for that. But it seemed that what the exploiter or exploiters realised is that once voting opened, they could essentially, almost as an atomic operation, do what the DeFi community calls a flash loan, which is where you borrow some cryptocurrency and then use it and then repay it all in one lump. So they basically were able to borrow something like close to $100 million instantaneously, invest it into the community so that they had the supermajority, which is clearly not the idea, of being able to do that for these emergency transactions, approve the transaction, which basically paid money to scammer, instantly repay the loan, push currency into tumbling service, profit. And so the burning question is, did they break the law even? That's they fascinating. They the rules. Yeah. They made a proposal. They then voted on it admittedly using borrowed cryptocurrency not stuff that they had at the time they proposed this they borrowed it later came in achieved the majority voted on this one particular thing repaid the loan and in one transaction that meant they could they could do this as a flash loan so they didn't really have that currency for any purpose other than approving the vote and the vote allowed them to get back enough money not only to repay the loan but pretty much to walk off with about $76 million worth of other people's money, as well as a whole lot of Beanstalk's money, I guess. So I'm sure that there isn't a listener out there who would argue that this complied with 
the spirit of the beanstalk community. But I guess there may be some people who go, well, them's the rules. And nobody hacked anything. They didn't steal money to get the collateral they needed to vote some for something. They didn't use a bot to get other people to vote with them who didn't realise they were voting. The principle of the voting was that you could vote with collateral that you had at the instant you voted, not at the time that you made the proposal. And it happened that what they proposed was a contract that was clearly far more beneficial to them than to anybody in Ukraine, Doug. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so they, were, they just, were they just smart but legally weaselly? Or could you argue that this is unauthorized access? I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. But we'd love to hear your opinion. Head over to Naked Security and leave a comment. But there's another aspect to this, and I bet you can guess what it is, Doug, because you've spoken about this uh, and the issues behind it, the, the moral or ethical issues behind it, when we spoke about, remember, that Poly Networks hack? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I remember. Yeah. Could we please have our money back? Yes. That's what they did. Like, they don't, they, they're kind of stuck. Uh, apparently, one of the spokespeople in the Beanstalk Communities Discord channel basically just sort of heart on sleeve said, honestly, not sure what to type. We are The project has not had any venture backing, so it is highly unlikely there's any sort of bailout coming kind of saying we kind of got hoist by our own petard like who would have thought but then it seems that beanstalk have gone out to that people or people unknown whom they're now referring to as the exploiter using a using a blockchain transaction that that exists only to contain a comment (laughs) they've actually said in the wake of yesterday's attack Beanstalk Farms, that's the organisation, makes the following offer to the exploiter. Return 90% of the withdrawn funds to our deployment wallet. We will treat the remaining 10% as a white hat bounty properly payable to you. Thousands of individuals have been harmed and this is an opportunity to make good on yesterday's events. To me, the term make good means you pay back 100%, (laughs) but, you know, you can see why they're doing that it worked for poly networks they'd lost what was it 600 million doug and they it said was a oh, lot yeah please mr white hat give us the money back because that person had been making all these weird sort of socio-political statements about how they weren't in it for the money and they did get most of the money back others have tried it since we've spoken about that on the podcast and it didn't work the money just disappeared um but as i wrote on naked security it's uh seems to be a case of desperate times call for desperate measures well that is a fascinating article we'll keep an eye on that i hope we get updates but you know if if this scammer just doesn't respond then we'll know that uh, they've made their decision to keep all the money that is beanstalk cryptocurrency heist scammer votes himself all the money yeah as i said please come along and give us your thoughts where do you stand both on the heist itself and the response do you think this kind of thing should be a crime or is a crime? Or was it just a, you know, you made the rules and they didn't work out for you? A smart but legal trick. And equally importantly, in terms of the response in general, is offering a bug bounty retrospectively saying, OK, we'll treat it as research now, even though you didn't declare it responsible in the first place. Are retrospective bug bounties acceptable as a sort of last ditch recovery re- tactic? or are they? 
setting a dangerous precedent? Are there, are there legalistic cop-outs that we could do without in the cybersecurity community? Come and, come and tell us what you think. And uh, as the sun begins to set on another Naked Security podcast, let's hear from one of our readers. Well, we talked about the Commodore Pet in last week's episode, if you recall. And podcast listener Michael writes, quote, I always love it when you bring up old computers on the podcast. My friend had a Commodore Pet when I was a kid. His dad brought it over from America. It had the tape deck built in and had the weird keyboard. The ZX Spectrum was the first computer I ever owned. Now that had a weird keyboard. I must have spent hundreds of hours programming it and saving those to the tape deck. What fun that was. And Paul, if memory serves, there was the Spectrum, there was the ZX80, there was the ZX81, all by the Sinclair company. Technically, since they were British computers, they were officially the ZX80, the ZX81. Oh, excuse me. The yeah, ZX yep. Spectrum. So sorry. And no, I mean, that, that's how you'll hear people say them. That's yeah. how they're known. Where I was living at the time, if I could have got the pounds sterling together, if I could have imported it, I might well have bought a ZX80 or a ZX81. I mean, we're literally talking about some of the very first home computers that weren't things like Apple's or Pets that were in the thousands of dollars range. So you're talking about 50 to 100 pounds. But it may be heretical to say this since I am British by birth, but I personally always found Sinclair products more than underwhelming. <gasps> I did have a chum at school who had a, a Sinclair, an early Sinclair calculator, and it was quite simply the worst, most unreliable, most useless electronic product I've ever seen. And <laughs> although it was extra super cheap, it was cheap because it was just uselessly bad. So I skipped those ZX series, including the Spectrum, which is very highly regarded in the UK. They were, the they space were bar of, is where the right, the right shift key is on a modern keyboard. Well, it wasn't so really hard. a proper keyboard. It, wasn't, yeah. it, was, it wasn't even really a calculator keyboard. It was just a load of membranes, and you, sort of, you pressed the key onto the membrane underneath. Yeah, so it, wow. It, you know, that was how they cut costs. I, I grew up on an Acorn Atom, which was competing product from the UK. I, I wasn't in the UK, but I got one from someone who'd imported one and built it up. 256 by 192 monochrome graphics, 12K. Mine had 12 well. kilobytes. But it was a very different path to the ZX80, 81, and Spectrum series because it was a completely different CPU. The ZX series and the Speccy, they had the Z80, thus the name, and the Acorn Atom, like the PET, and like the Apple II, had the MOSTEC 6502. All right, good times had by all. I love talking about these old computers, so let's see if we can keep this rolling, how many episodes we can keep this rolling. If you have an interesting story, comment, or question you'd like to submit, we'd love to read it on the podcast. You can email tips at sophos.com. You can comment on any one of our articles, or you can hit us up on social at Naked Security. And don't forget to tell us what was your first and favorite, or perhaps least favorite, CPU that you ever programmed for. Perfect. That's our show for today. Thanks very much for listening. For Paul Ducklin, I'm Doug Amath, reminding you until next time to stay, stay secure. secure.